Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratrude. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome back to the Family Beacon Podcast. My name is Grace Evans and my co-host Moses Bratrude is actually traveling. He's out of the country right now, which is so exciting for him. So maybe he can share a little bit about his trip when he returns. But in, in his absence, we will be releasing a bit of an unconventional podcast episode, which I am truly so excited about. About a month ago, Moses actually gave a speech to a local university, to a bunch of students there, and it was about how we can create a society where God is honored, where family is, you know, uplifted, and where life is cherished. All of those important principles upheld, and that speech was very inspiring to those students, so we thought it would be awesome to release that for you guys today. And if you're listening on, you know, Spotify or Anchor and you actually want to see him give the presentation, it was videoed. So you guys can head over to our YouTube channel if you want to see the presentation rather than just listen to it. But it was a really inspiring speech. So without further ado, I will go ahead and turn it over to Moses. Folks, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Moses Bradford, and I am the Director of Strategy at Minnesota Family Council. Uh, Very briefly, Minnesota Family Council is our state's largest Christian group dedicated to life, family, and religious freedom. And that is more or less what I'm talking about tonight, but this is not an infomercial for our organization, just to be clear. So I think that will become clear very quickly, actually. Um, because I'm going to start by talking about Abraham Lincoln. Um, When Abraham Lincoln was 29 years old, he uh, he addressed a group uh, called the Lyceum, the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois. This was in 1838. And he had uh, some things to say to them, which which have become extremely famous. It's called the Lyceum Address. Um, And in fact, if we could get that pulled up, that would be great. If not, that's fine too. Um, And if there's a clicker, that would be great too. Um, So Lincoln was only 29 years old. He was a young lawyer. He was a politician on the make. Um, And before many other people, Lincoln was aware, uh, there's his earliest picture, which was still eight years after this. So you can only imagine how young he would have been, how young he would have looked uh, in 1838. In many ways, the dangers that Lincoln is going to address in this speech are dangers that we still face as a society. Um, He argued that the greatest danger uh, to our nation did not come from external enemies, uh, but rather from internal discord and the erosion of respect for the constitutional system. And uh, those concerns were related to the growing debate over slavery and the expansion of slavery into new territories. And uh, there were, there were you know, fights long before the Civil War. There was armed conflict between uh, groups that wanted to bring slavery into a state, groups that wanted not to bring slavery into a state. Kansas was a particular focus of these things. So um, I won't read the whole quote. It's, ex- it's extremely good, and I commend it to you. Uh, but essentially, he's saying that we have been given by our ancestors certain gifts. We he says, we possess the fairest portion of the earth. 
and we have a government by the people, for the people, etc. Um, so what could threaten us? We are in a great position. Well, let's look at the horizon. What could threaten our felicitous existence? And uh, how then shall we perform it? At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure of the earth in their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever were to reach us, it must spring up amongst us. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever or die by suicide. So that was Lincoln's assessment in 1838. No external enemy, not the European powers then, and we could say not Russia or China now, uh, is an existential threat to this country. We are the most defensible country in the world. We have two oceans between in us and any potential enemies. We, have, we are the richest nation in the world with the most advanced military, etc. But that doesn't make, seem to make us happy, does it, as Americans? We feel, rightly, that there are still many threats to our uh, existence, existential threats. So my goal tonight is similar to Lincoln's. I want to make you aware as students and young people of the threats that are facing our republic now and present a vision for you for how to, you, how to become involved, not as partisan actors, but as Christian believers. And I'm not talking about low taxes and small government. Those things are good, but I'm talking about doing things that are great, things that are momentous. I'm talking tonight about the three things that I think should be the North Star of our politics, and that is life, family, and religious freedom. And I'll get into those things in a little bit of detail here for you tonight. That means protecting hum human life from conception to natural death, seeing God's design for the family honored in our society, protecting religious freedom. So then my purpose tonight is to lay out a vision in a way that will inspire you to take action in a way that's above and beyond what you came here prepared to do. So um, we have then three arguments uh, to take action. I will argue that these things are good, uh, life, family, religious freedom, that they are uh, threatened. That means that we need to take action to defend them. And the third argument will be a surprise once I get to it. So let's talk about life. Let's talk about why is it good to act as if all human life has value. It occurs to me that we can answer this question pretty well by looking at societies that do not value life. Just to the north of us in Canada, Assisted suicide claims 10,000 lives per year. That's 10 times higher than it was in 2016 in Canada. And it's also more than twice as high 
than the official Canadian suicide rate. So that means that two-thirds of Canadians who die by suicide are killed by the state out of misplaced compassion. Moreover, Canada's lax laws mean that patients with disabilities, including disabled veterans, are offered assisted suicide rather than the chance to continue their lives in a dignified manner, even as they reach the end of their lives. So that's a culture, I think we could agree, that does not value human life, does not value vulnerable human life. Now, as we are conservatives here, we understand that the state has coercive power, that there are times when it's appropriate for the state to, uh, to choose uh, who lives and dies. In a wartime situation, that might be necessary. But in abortion and assisted suicide, we see the state enabling and encouraging the killing of its own people to supposedly benefit others. In abortion, the person who benefits is supposedly the erstwhile mother who wants to achieve her personal goals and feels scared with the possibility of being saddled with an unwanted child. In fact, however, it is better for women and better for society if instead of abortion, we have a compassionate safety net in place so that all children and all women have a safe and secure environment for the children to grow up in, whether or not that is with their birth parents. Abortion is a coercive and violent act. We can speak and act with compassion to women who face unplanned pregnancy while still affirming always that abortion does not solve anyone's problem. It ends a life. Just to put that in perspective, a report recently calculated that in Minnesota, just in the last 10 years, because of our falling birth rate, we have a shortage of 285,000 children. Without these children, our state and our nation is in danger of withering away, as is already happening in Europe and parts of Asia. The abortion rate in Minnesota is roughly 10,000 per year. So in round numbers then, our shortage of children, empty seats in classrooms, jobs going unfilled, families not being formed, would be one-third less without the tragedy of abortion. And doesn't that bring to mind Lincoln's words, if destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher, we will live forever, or die by suicide. One type of suicide is to actively work against yourself, to take up the gun or the bottle of pills. But another type of suicide is slowly withering away due to societal despair, societal failure to thrive. And I think Lincoln would recognize the suicidal impulse he diagnosed in 1838 in our societal malaise today. Now, here's where I could make an explicitly religious argument. I could say that God created human life and desires it to be protected and we should obey God. But I don't need to make an explicitly religious argument here, and I think that's important to say. We live in a post-Christian society. We can hope and pray and work towards a day when all of our fellow Americans uh, believe what we do about human life and about God's design for human life. But we also can argue for uh, a right to life in a way that everyone understands and can, and can understand in their minds, because if we're making an argument for life based on something that people don't believe in, we're going to not get as far as we would, unfortunately. So 
we need to, uh, we need to understand our cultural context and be smart. And I say that, of course, coming from a Christian group and speaking to what I suspect is a largely Christian audience. So that's the issue of life, and I will come back to that a little bit. But I also want to talk about gender, family, sexuality. Now, uh, these things are more numinous and more complicated, I think, than the life issue. Um, there's several different things going on. For example, we could be talking about traditional marriage between one man and one woman. Now, if you ask people in a poll, do they support that? Only about 25% or so would say that that, well, that should be the law of the land. Or we might be talking about protecting kids from um, uh, gender transition surgery, which, is, which comes with lifelong irreversible side effects. That's something 66% of Minnesotans uh, oppose, according to a recent poll. So that's something that there's broad consensus across party lines that, is, uh, that just should be off the table. So why, then, is it good to defend a vision of man and woman as the only two genders, marriage between one man and one woman as the licit expression of our sexuality? As with the question of life, for me, it's about what's going to bring about human flourishing. If we look at history, it is societies that have protected and honored both masculinity and femininity. And those who have held up marriage as an honorable estate and protected it from abuse that have flourished. Of course, that's not least because heterosexual unions tend to produce children. And children are the ones who actually bring forth the values of a society into the future. The only way we can see into the future is by having children and training them up as much as we can to live the way we believe they should, of course, with their own free will, and see them go into the world. And that is what, of course, my hope is for all of you. Now, in 1950, fewer than 4% of births were to unmarried parents. In 2022, 40% of births are to unmarried parents. That's a tenfold increase. For children born within marriage, the divorce rate has skyrocketed, leaving more and more children estranged from one or both parents. This is where, statistically, this might hit home for some of you who are, perhaps like me, children of that sad euphemism, a broken home. On every measure, children perform better when they're living with two married biological parents. That's incontrovertible. So once again, I do not need to resort to specifically or explicitly religious arguments to make the case that it's better for children and society when a marriage and family are honored. So defending the family is going to look different in different times. The Supreme Court has ruled that marriage is not merely between a man and a woman, but rather any mix and match combination of two people. There's nothing you and I can do in the short term to change that nor should we focus on it. Instead, our best bet is to show the vitality of marriage between a man and a woman. To find someone you love, to get married to them, to stay married, to continue loving them, to have children if God blesses you, and to raise them in a loving environment. That's the best argument for traditional marriage, for people to be in one or to see one, to truly see what it looks like to, in your own life, for the lives of others. I have that blessing now, I hope you all will too. Now, religious freedom, my third point here. 
Why is it good? Why does it need to be defended? The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights to the Constitution came out in the early 1790s. It said that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. To my knowledge, this was one of the first explicit statements of religious freedom protections in the world, although, of course, people of various faiths had been coexisting for centuries. Religious freedom in the United States has never been perfect. Catholics, Jews, Muslims, as well as non-conforming Protestants have faced various types of religious discrimination at various points. But as of this date, we have some of the best religious freedom protections in the world, and we must fight to maintain that. Just to give one counterexample, if we look at what's happening in France, France is a country with enforced secularism, what they call laïcité. Uh, laïcité, uh, which dates, of course, to the French Revolution, means that it is absolutely verboten to wear a crucifix in school, and it's also forbidden to wear a Muslim headscarf. And France is a population with a large Muslim minority. So that is a source of huge tension. And that is the sort of enforced secularism that we see spreading in various countries, especially in Europe or perhaps in China. You can contrast that with the vibrant diversity of American religious expression. Now, I personally love Christian theology and doctrine. I believe salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. So why then would I be in favor of um, countenancing other religions who do not make the same claims? And there's more to my answer than just a pragmatic, okay, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone sort of calculation. Christians can trace the idea of liberty in religious matters back to very early in church history, even if we haven't always been super great at actually uh, acting that out in practice. In fact, religious freedom is a Christian idea that arose in Christian societies in the Christian intellectual tradition of the West. So my thesis statement here is that every American should have matters of uh, liberty in uh, should have uh, liberty in matters of religion, and that is good for human flourishing. I could spend more time here, but I I think it's I think it's I, I think it's enough for me to state a few basic facts. Being involved in religious observance tends to make people happier, more productive, less lonely. A society with strong and diverse types of religious expression has more opportunities for each individual to become part of a greater whole, to find the love, sociability, and meaning that we all crave. In other words, religious freedom leads to religious practice, and religious practice leads to human flourishing. So, life, family, religious freedom, these three tenets that I'm saying should be at the core of our political observance, of our politics, Are these things under threat? They are. Uh, I don't think I need to do much work convincing you here. Um, The whole point of the so-called culture war is that just like in a war with guns and bombs, there are certain objectives that we have and certain objectives that our opponents have. Thankfully, this conflict uh, takes place more or less peaceably, and we should strive to have it remain that way. But I think it's self-evident that human life is under attack, Unborn lives are under attack, and uh, the oldest and most vulnerable among us are under attack. And nor do I have to spend much time convincing you that the common sense approach to gender and sexuality is under a threat. This has been one of the most active and toxic parts of the culture war over the last 20 years. None of you have missed this. 
First, the debate over gay marriage. Then the debates over fairness in athletics, the ethics of minor gender transition, the competing accusations, bigot, groomer, that each side throws at each other. Those things are indicative of threats to gender and sexuality as we understand them. Finally, religious freedom. This is under attack in a few ways, notably through the court system. There is an organization called the Satanic Temple. There are other organizations like the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Um, the Satanic Temple is not a real Satan-worshipping group. That'd be kind of um, not cool, but I would at least, I'd buy them a beer. Um, but this is uh, a fake religious group which exists to use the country's robust religious freedom protections against people of faith. Um, so this is, uh, if you haven't heard of this, this is going to uh, make your hair stand up. The, sa the Satanic Temple alleges that um, restricting abortion is a violation of their religious beliefs. They uh, argue that their rituals and practices include the termination of a pregnancy. And therefore, any restriction on abortion would violate their constitutional right to free expression. This is a unique uh, interpretation of religious freedom. But because we have such strong religious protections, this has caused and will continue to cause heated debate across our country. More broadly, we see religiously affiliated institutions such as schools, hospitals, face increasing challenges to their values and beliefs. Okay, so these things are good, these things are under threat. What's next? Well, what's next is to take action. And this, I think, is a harder case for me to make. If these things are truly good, and if they are truly under threat, we are tempted to apathy and despair because we see that these threats are so serious. What can one person or even a small group do to counter the desperate attempts to call good evil and evil good? Well, actually, we can do quite a lot. My entreaty to you is this. Become part of the historic movement to protect the rights of the unborn child, to stand up for two genders, man and woman, to defend the right of free religious expression for every American. In doing so, you will not only make a difference, but you will feel better about the situation we find ourselves in as a nation. When faced with a large task, it's, you know, it's not great to sit around in your dorm room and worry about the enormity of it. It's good to roll up your sleeves and get to work, right? Not only is this work a reward in itself, but this work is the essential building block of how we ultimately actually win. So my hope is that Generation Z will find a wholesome political engagement that will define your goals and bring them about better than our boomer parents were able to do. Now, are we promised ultimate victory in our endeavor? We are not. But we know on a pragmatic level that those who do take action for their beliefs are the ones who ultimately win. They convince their neighbors and then they win. This is an important point because without it, you are apt to get discouraged if you do get involved in this battle. Uh, American politics moves in cycles. As long as we are in a democratic system, we'll see wins and losses. And for conservatives right now, there's some losses, right? It would be silly to deny it. We're not an ostrich that buries its head in the sand. We need to look at the facts. We can look, however, uh, at history. Again, this is my, uh, what I always like to do because I am, um, that's my background. I have a master's degree in history. 
We can look at the abolitionists, for example. We can look at the ones in the US. They did great work, but we did have to fight the most bloody war in American history to uh, bring slavery to an end. The abolitionists in the UK, uh, as many of you probably know, they were able to win the hearts and minds of their opponents without bloodshed. There were uh, coins minted at the time showing a slave in chains raising his arms up and saying, am I not a man and a brother? That was one example of anti-slavery, quote-unquote, propaganda. Extremely effective. Why? Because it humanized the slave, who was extremely distant from the British people. Um, they were all the way over in the Caribbean, uh, harvesting sugar, dying at extremely high rates, being treated horribly, just like they were in the U.S., but they were able to do it in the UK, ban slavery without bloodshed. Now there's all sorts of differences uh, between the situations. But as we look uh, to the fight for life, the fight for protecting children, the fight for protecting religious freedom, we can look at that example. That sort of bloodless but also ultimate, um, or at least complete, victory is actually the only type of victory we will accept. The fight goes on until then. Now, here's where I'm going to get theological. Uh, and this is also where no doubt perhaps some of you will become uncomfortable. Some of you may not be religious, so I will address you first. I have the greatest respect for people's religious beliefs. The fastest growing quote unquote religious group in America is nothing in particular. Religious people like me and like some of you uh, have to do more clearly, to show the enduring relevance of our faith to people who simply don't see it. But if I can challenge non-religious people uh, on, on one thing, it would be this. Think about the things that you care deeply about. Perhaps you care about the love of your friends and family. You care about the value of an education, not just for earning money, but for its own sake. You believe that education can help you become a better person. You believe that you can do good for someone without compromising your responsibilities and that you should do good to people. Now, the question I would ask non-religious people is, why do those things matter? Is it okay to not love your family? Is it okay to not do good to people? If you believe that, then that's what we would call absolute moral relativism. Very few people believe that. Uh, instead, these things matter to you for deep philosophical and metaph metaphysical reasons. I would argue that love, friendship, and doing good matter to you because God created the world and humans in such a way that they do. For more on that, please read the Gospel of John and find a church that will take you. Most of them will. But I also want to address those of you who are religious. And I'm going to Philippians 1.27. To argue that God desires us to get involved in the political realm. And I know that that statement can sound a little bit, I don't know, uh, it's October, so I'll say creepy. Um, so the, the verse says, practice citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you look it up in your Bible, you may see a different word there for citizenship. It might say uh, manner of life. Um, the Greek word, though, is polituma, uh, the, the root word polis, as in Minneapolis, the city or the state, politics, political engagement, citizenship. It really all flows from this. 
So we are called, in other words, to be citizens of this place, the city of St. Paul, the city of wherever you're from, the state of Minnesota. We're called to be citizens of this place in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, quick review. The gospel is the free gift of God's grace to us in the form of forgiveness and salvation through His grace alone and through His gift of faith. Now, wow, what would citizenship be if it was truly worthy of that? So we are redeemed from sin. And again, of course, I'm speaking within Christian theology. I hope it doesn't sound like inside baseball. We are redeemed to human flourishing. Flourishing is inhering to the way that God has made the universe and has made us, following His laws. Gospel citizenship is citizenship in which we can't ignore and in which no one else can ignore the message of Christianity and our allegiance to it. Most of all, it is citizenship with earthly means but not earthly ends. We seek the good of the city we're in by looking at the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. So, I've endeavored to show you guys that engaging in the struggle for life, for families, for religious freedom is good, necessary, effective, and part of our calling as believers in God and in a moral order. But now I do want to take time to talk about some counter-arguments that people will raise and which may come to your mind or which may come to the minds of your friends if you ever were to raise the subject of them and instantly become uncool. You could argue that taking action for life is bigoted and it hurts people. This is extremely common. You'll, it, you'll hear that it's very bad to talk about the fact that male and female are real things that exist not social constructs, because this is said to be horribly difficult and traumatic for people if they, to hear if they do not identify with their birth sex. I would imagine that many of you as university students have encountered that. Now, if this were true, it would be very consequential. We're talking about things that we believe are good for society, but are they actually bad for society and for individual people all along? Now, you guys have to answer that question for yourselves. My answer is no. An individual person can be hurt by words, and that's important to consider. Christians are called to speak the truth in love, but don't forget the first part of that, speak the truth. It is where the truth meets the most resistance, right, that we must stand firm and speak the truth loudly, firmly, and yes, lovingly. Now, this is what G.K. Chesterton was getting at in a famous quote which was recently uh, quoted again by the now Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney. She is, she's wonderful. Um, Chesterton said this, the great march of mental destruction will go on. Everything will be denied. Everything will become a creed. It is a reasonable position to deny the stones in the street. It will be a religious dogma to assert them. It is a rational thesis that we are all in a dream. It will be a mystical sanity to say that we are all awake. Fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer. We shall be left defending not only the incredible virtues and sanities of human life, but something more incredible still, this huge, impossible universe which stares us in the face. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer. Fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Perhaps for you, certainly for me, that feels, that feels real. That feels like what we see in our current culture. So much lying and so few people willing to stand for the truth. 
So I think it's important to state that while offending someone may be bad, substituting a lie for the truth is always bad. Let us always stand up and speak clearly in defense of what we believe, that human life has dignity at every stage, that men and women have inherent dignity as men and women, and that religious freedom blesses everyone. Now, next counter-argument. What you might, another thing you might hear from your friends, perhaps your conservative friends. They might say taking action is ineffective because progressive triumph is inevitable. It's not. It just isn't. There was a court decision called Roe v. Wade. Anyone remember that? Anyone remember how that is now in the dustbin of history? It's gone. It disappeared. It disappeared despite how huge it was and how long it stood. 49 years it was on the books, as it were. Roe v. Wade was an arrogant and overreaching decision in which nine relatively elderly white men decided that the taking of a human life in the womb was a justifiable and legal act in all 50 states. And now it's gone. So to those who say progressive triumph is inevitable, I will say in the brief time available to me, it's not. There's one example. Let's keep moving. Now, certainly there are dark clouds on the horizon. It might rain. But a warrior who gives up and stays inside because the weather is bad is never going to kill the dragon. Uh, in fact, we have good reason to be hopeful. If we look at history, we can see times of national unity coming after times when everything seemed to fall apart. In the 1980s and the 1990s, even the 2000s in which you guys grew up, were a little bit of a taste of that after the divisions of the 60s and 70s. I have more here about the 1980 and 1984 elections, but I will skip over that, and we can talk about it later if you want. What happened, though, during those decades was, is really important. The divisions among Americans did not go away. They were not imagined away. But they did fade in importance in comparison with something that we need to recover, which is our true unity as Americans with all of our fellow Americans and all of our fellow humans. We have more in common than we have that divides us. Our true unity with those on the opposite side of the debate and in the middle and people who have never considered this debate, this culture war, who have managed to avoid it, our true unity is something that is always hidden, always off stage, always humming along as an undercurrent to the endless debates on this or that issue. If we can reassert that unity, if we can show that our plea for human flourishing is legitimate and that our values will take us there, then we will, I hope and pray, see unity in our nation again. So, um, I think one final question before I conclude is whether we should take action within the system that we have or outside of it. Uh, and by the system, I mean the American constitutional order that we've had since 1789 or so, where we have elections and that is the main outlet for our political uh, activity. Uh, and in the time, the years that we don't have elections, like right now, we spend our time doing things like this, convincing people that things are worth fighting for. Um, 
as uh, Sam told Frodo, there is good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for, right? Uh, there, are, there are other people who will say that, uh, and I'm talking about conservatives here, who will say that we actually need to leave the system behind. Um, I won't go into this in detail, but there are both Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, the Roman Catholic version of this uh, is called integralism, if you've heard of that, and the Protestant version would be called uh, more or less Christian nationalism. And the idea basically is that we need to have, uh, we need to get rid of any sense of a distinction between the law of the United States and the law of the Bible or the uh, regulations of the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, that is that might seem good on the surface, but what it does do is it absolutely puts the gabash on religious freedom. And that you can go to anyone who espouses these views and ask them about that, and I have um, done so, and they will say that religious freedom is not very important, poo poo poo. You know, it's just, uh, they, will, they will try to shrug off the question. And that is not only unrealistic, but it's also dumb. Um, it's clear that some of these people are addressing a version of the United States that ne has never existed. You know, when there were 13 original colonies, most of them had, uh, com not completely different, they were all Protestants, but they had more or less, well, Maryland was Catholic, did you know that? Um, uh, in Pennsylvania, there were Quakers. In Massachusetts, there were Puritans. In Virginia, there were Anglicans, and they didn't like each other. That was part of the reason why we have religious freedom in this country in the first place, is because there were these real differences. And so there has never been this sort of uniformity in religion in this country, and we shouldn't pretend that there has, and so we should respect religious freedom. Okay, I'll get off my high horse about that. The most dangerous version of this idea, um, has anybody encountered the term Red Caesar? Okay, well, it's this idea that you'll, you'll see in certain conservative circles that we need someone who will uh, come and do what Julius Caesar did, overthrow the Republic and become a strong right-wing conservative leader so that we don't have to worry about this tough work of fighting and possibly even losing elections anymore. I, I reject that utterly. I think, it's, I think it sounds uh, unpleasant, violent, and not particularly um, effective anyway. <laughs> um, I think it sounds like a great way of bringing the guillotine to a country that has never seen mass political executions. So let me conclude, and I will be happy to take questions afterwards. As a young person in general, you do not have a ton of money. Um, and you also may feel that you don't have a lot of time, but you have some time, you know, certainly in the summer at least, you can't make a donation, a big donation to the candidate you support. Maybe you can, but generally you can give them your time. Show up. Show up for things that matter to you. Uh, go to your, uh, your, your party caucus, whatever party you uh, are affiliated with. That'll be in February. And it's going to feel a little weird because there'll be a, a bunch of boomers. And it's going to feel very uncool. Uh, stick with it, bring your friends. The fun part is you'll meet your neighbors, and they, uh, in my experience, have been cool people. I was 29 when I went to my first caucus. Don't wait as long as I did. It's actually pretty fun, and it only takes one evening. And that is the first step in the process by which our state will choose the candidates who will represent us on the ballot in November for, uh, uh, in the state house, and also for uh, Senate and for U.S. President.
but do so prayerfully. This is about principles, not party. Your political allegiance is your own. You do not owe it to any candidate, any party, any one cause. As Christians, we owe our allegiance to God. We do not engage in politics instead of religion, but rather we engage in politics because we are active in our churches, because doing so is seeking the good of the place where we've been planted, which for us right now is Minnesota. That is truly citizenship worthy of the gospel. I'll close with this quote from the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He said, let your credo be this, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me. I'll go further than Solzhenitsyn. Let the truth come into the world. And though we may not yet see a triumph, and let it come into the world through you. Let each, let each interaction you have be an opportunity for you to speak the capital T truth. You were made for this, to be a truth teller in a world of lies, hopeful in a world without hope, loving in a world full of hate, just in a world that is unjust. You are made for this because you are made by God and in His image. Thank you. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that speech by Moses. I know that I did. And I just wanted to pop on here one more time and remind you guys that we come out with new episodes every single Friday. And so make sure you tune in next week for the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom so you can get the facts and stand for truth. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MNFamilyCouncil and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Music